It's one thing to know that you're saved, but have you stopped to consider how and why God saved you? Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free resources over at Radical.net. In today's message from the Rethink Church, Rethink Mission Conference, David Platt urges us to consider these questions based on Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 32. When we realize that our salvation is solely by God's grace and aimed at God's glory, it should cause us to rethink our role in the mission of God. Here's David Platt with a sermon titled, Rethinking Our Lives, from Ezekiel chapter 36. If you have a Bible, and I hope uh, you or somebody around you does, you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, this is not where I originally planned on going tonight. I, uh, let me just say how thankful I am to be serving with these two other brothers in this picture tonight. I am grateful for God's grace toward me and both Andrew Scott and Francis Chan. Uh, they are... Their friendship is uh, an encouragement, an, exam- an example is evidence of God's love in my life. I'm thankful for how they spur me on toward Christ in many ways. And I, well, so the, the, the plan is, Lord willing, tonight, uh, Andrew will be talking about rethinking mission and Francis rethinking church. And my task uh, from the beginning was to rethink, help us to rethink our lives and Christianity as a whole. At least that's what was given to me. I was like, well, okay, it's fairly general. Huh, where can I find a text about that? Um, So I really, I I, I thought, I planned, I had a whole sermon prepared. We're just going to walk through, just all throughout the New Testament and just look at every description I could find just of a follower of Jesus, um, just dead to ourselves, crucified with Christ, alive in Christ, and just just look through all kinds of pictures of disciples. Um, But then... uh, Today, as I was praying about where to go and, and looking over those other notes, I just sensed the Lord leading to Old Testament text where God talks about what is new about our relationship with him. So the new covenant, when it was promised in Ezekiel, basically God's design for us in sending Jesus So what I want to do tonight is based on Ezekiel chapter 36, I want to ask you three questions based on this text that I hope will uh, lead you to rethink your life and your Christianity, your salvation according to God's word. So... Let me remind you of the context here, Ezekiel chapter 36. Well, the historical setting, 597 BC, the Babylonians exiled 
Jehoiakim, who's the king of Judah, along with several thousand others, including Ezekiel the prophet. So from the beginning of this book, Ezekiel was in exile. For the first 25 chapters of the book, Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed. Then in the middle of the book of Ezekiel, Jerusalem falls, and the last 16 chapters of Ezekiel occur chronologically after the fall of Jerusalem. So chapters 33 through 48 uh, is after the fall of Jerusalem, including the text we're looking at right now. So the entire book, though, Ezekiel's in exile. He's speaking to Israelites who were suffering in exile. And in this chapter specifically, Ezekiel is telling God's people what God is going to do when he brings about a new covenant. So start with me in verse 22. This is the word of God. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel." Oh God, I I pray that in the next few minutes you would take these words and bring them to life in a fresh way in this gathering. God, I pray that these moments would be a a demonstration of not of any wisdom in man, but of your spirit's power. We're asking you to help us rethink our lives. Lord, that doesn't come naturally to us. We're so prone to think like the world thinks. We need supernatural help to think according to your word. So we ask for that right now. Please, oh God, please help me to proclaim your word for what it says. Please help us to hear and please help us all in this, these moments uh, Please help us all supernaturally to hear from you. Transform our minds according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So three questions that spring from God's word to his people about a new covenant. Our covenant. Covenant by which we know God. Number one. How convinced are you that you have been saved solely by God's grace and supremely for God's glory among the nations? So that's the first question. How convinced are you, right where you're sitting right now, in this room or on live stream, that you've been saved solely by God's grace and supremely for God's glory among the nations. So here, if, if we were using kind of the rethink kind of picture, here, think the word is causing us to rethink how and why we have been saved. How and why we have been saved. So first the how. How have we been saved? Are you convinced that you've been saved solely by the grace of God? So over and over again in Ezekiel chapter 36, there is an emphasis on the sovereign initiative of God in saving his people. This text is driven entirely by the gracious activity of God. Just, Just look at it. Underline, circle, make a note. How many times the words I will are used in what we just read? Just, just, I mean, you just look at it. Verse 22, say to the house of Israel, it's not for your sake, I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, will I, which, uh, uh, sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, to which you came. Then verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. From your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. End of verse 28, I will be your God. Verse 29, I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. Verse 30, I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. And then verse 32 sums it up when God says, I will act. 13 times in 11 verses, God says, I will do all of these things. Salvation is clearly grounded in the sovereign grace of God. The hearts of God's people will never be clean and the souls of God's people will never be saved unless God acts in sovereign grace and mercy. Man is hopeless in his sin unless God comes to save, unless God comes, to use other imagery from Ezekiel, as a shepherd to bring permanent peace, then man will remain under his perpetual wrath. The sole ground of salvation is the sovereign grace of God. This is Ephesians chapter two, right? We know this text in the New Testament. For three verses there in that chapter, Paul talks about the sinfulness of man, how we are dead in our sin. Not kind of dead, partly dead, sort of dead. Dead in our sin. The hinge verse though where everything changes is verse four. Remember it? Ephesians two, four says, but God being rich in mercy. And then you remember all the things God does? Because of his great love, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. God's doing all the 
action there. God's the one who's acting. It's interesting. You look at Ephesians 2, all the references to us are actually in the passive voice. Ephesians 2, 5, you have been saved. Not you saved yourself. You were saved. This happened to you from the outside. We know Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you have been saved. This has been done to you through faith. Just in case we're not getting it, Paul makes it clear, it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. God did this. It's the same language which the Bible describes salvation all throughout. Remember that glorious chapter in Romans, chapter three, verse 21 through 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace with the redemption that came by Christ Jesus and are justified. Like this Salvation is something that happens to us. Sinners don't justify themselves. Sinners are justified by God. God does this. The sole ground of salvation is the grace and mercy of God. And and the supreme aim of salvation is the global glory of God. So the how? Saved solely by his grace. The why? Saved supremely for his glory among the nations. So think about it in this passage. Why does God save his people? Even when they sin against him. So you think about it time and time again, all throughout the Old Testament, God's people turned away from him. God's people turned away from him to worthless idols. They followed foreign kings. They worshiped false gods. They indulged in idolatry and immorality over and over and over again. And they warranted the wrath of God. And as a result, God showed his judgment to them. Here in Ezekiel, he scattered them into exile, into a foreign land, but God did not destroy them. God did not do what he did. Think about it. What he did with all kinds of other peoples in the Old Testament. You read through the Old Testament. We see God striking down entire pagan idolatrous Nations, and it is right and just and holy for God to do this. So why did he not do the same thing with the people of Israel? Well, back up to verse 16 in this chapter, and you'll see the answer. Listen for the motive of God in saving his people from all-out destruction. Listen to verse 16. God's recounting his people's rebellion. He says in verse 16, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds, their ways before me like the uncleanness of a woman and her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. Then God describes to them what he did in his judgment. I scattered them, in verse 19, among the nations. They were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them, but now. So here's the answer to our question. Why were they judged and exiled, but not destroyed? Listen to it, verse 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Did you hear that? God just said, when my people were exiled of the nations, they were profaning my name. The nations were saying, this people's of the Lord. Look how miserable they are. And the conclusion among the nations was clear. These people's God is not great. So out of concern for his holy name among the nations, God says what he does in verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, 
It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God says, I want the holiness of my great name to be known among all the nations. That is why I am doing what I am doing. That is why I will do what I will do. I will save and redeem and restore my sinful people, not for their sake, but for the sake of my holy name. Are you hearing this? This is a very different way to think. The reason God saves his people from destruction is because God is zealous for the fame of his name among the nations. The resounding reality of Ezekiel is clear. Why does God save his people? Because God loves his glory and desires his glory among all the nations. When God saves his people, he doesn't do it ultimately for their sake. He does it ultimately for his sake. God will bring his people back from exile. He will cleanse them of their sin. He will restore them in the land. And in the process, he will show the nations that he is great. Follow this. God is for them because it brings great glory to him. God is for his people because this brings great glory to him among all peoples. And this is not the way the 21st century Christian in America thinks about God. On both levels. Like saved solely by his grace. Like we are so proud of what we can accomplish We think so highly of what we bring to the table. And Ezekiel 36 is a reminder to every one of us who is in the church, every one of us who calls ourselves a Christian, we are not in the church. We are not in this gathering right now, not one of us because of any merit in us. The only reason we are here is because of the mercy of God. And he has shown us this mercy for the spread of his glory among the nations, for his glory in the world. This is the purpose of our salvation. The picture here is a God who is zealous for his own glory. You look at it in Ezekiel, 70 different times, God says, I am doing what I am doing so that People, the nations will know who I am. God is passionate about his name being known and his glory being exalted all over the world. He judges people and he saves people. Why? Because he loves his glory. Now, that may feel uncomfortable for us to say or to think about, namely because that would be a negative characteristic in any one of us. To love our own glory to delight in our own fame, to center around ourselves, and that would be inappropriate for us. But brothers and sisters, that is more than appropriate for God. It is more than appropriate for God to be God-centered. 
who else would you rather him center around? If it rubs you wrong that God lives to exalt himself, who else would you rather him exalt? You? At the moment he were to exalt someone or something else, he would no longer be the God who is worthy of all exaltation, and he is. It's what it means for him to be God. God by his very nature is centered around God. There's no one greater than him. And you might think, well, doesn't this take away from his grace from us, from his love for us, that he loves me for his own glory? No, no, no. Oh, follow this. Think about it. If God is completely good and right and loving, all that is love is summed up in God, then what is the greatest gift he could give us? Enjoyment of himself. Worship of himself. Glory in himself. This is the beauty. How does God show his glory? He shows his glory by sending his son as a sacrifice for our sin so that you and I, by his grace, might be forgiven of all of our sin, restored to a relationship with him where we worship him with our all. And not just, yeah, we worship him among the nations. This is just the text, like it's right there. We don't think like this though. Like what child comes home from a Sunday school class in our churches and has drawn a picture and at the top it says, God loves himself. (laughs) It's it's me, it's all about me. Which he does love us, he does love us. But he loves us supremely for his glory among the nations. That changes the way you live. Changes the way you, you think about God, the way you read the scripture, and it makes sense. Like, you just think about this book. It's all, it's not just here in Ezekiel 36. I was, I was uh, uh, preaching at a conference a couple weeks ago on the Psalms, and it just hit me in a fresh way. I'm like meditating on these different Psalms, and I'm thinking, God has written a book that instructs us how to give him glory. I just pictured, I pictured, uh, so my wife Heather's here tonight, like I pictured going to my wife Heather and saying, babe, I wrote some poems (laughs) about how great I am. (laughs) And I want to give them as a gift to you. (laughs) So, So that, so that, like think about this, so that you can read them to me. You will love this. It'll be so life-giving for you. Like in the morning and in the evening. <laughs> oh, that's very different. But this is what God has given us. Because he knows this is actually good for us. It's most life-giving for us. It's Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary, I've beheld your power and glory. And what does it say? Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. His love is better than life. This is what it means to be saved. It means you love the glory of God more than you love your own life. You want the glory of God among the nations more than you want your own life. That will change your Christianity. When you love the glory of God among the nations more than you love your own life, your own plans, your own dreams, your own possessions, 
When you have all that on the table before him, my entire life is yours for your glory among the nations. That changes the way you think about your life, changes the way you think about Christianity. When you realize that when you are convinced that you have been saved solely by the grace of God, supremely for the glory of God among the nations. I would just submit that if we were actually convinced of that, it would change the face of our Christianity. It would change the look of our lives and our families and our future. Can I remind you, God's written a whole book. He's designed all of history to end with him getting glory from all the nations for the grace he has shown. But that is where the train of history is headed. I guess I'm just based on the word of God saying tonight to every one of us, let's get on that train. Let's get on that train. So that's, that's question number one. Question number one. All right, question number two. Question number two. How confident are you? And I apologize, these are not short questions. <laughs> I, I'm realizing like right now, they're actually, they seem like attempt to put like three questions in one question and only call it one. So anyway. Here's, here's question number two. I think they're on the screen for some help. How confident are you to make disciples and multiply churches without dependence on performances, programs, and professionals? So I'm asking this of you right where you're sitting, not just like generally, vaguely, but specifically where you're sitting. How confident are you to make disciples and multiply churches without dependence on performances, programs, and professionals. So, whereas the first question is like rethinking how and why we've been saved, the second question, we're rethinking what happened when we were saved. So think about Ezekiel 36 here. Right after God states his clear concern for his consummate glory among the nations, he tells his people specifically what he's going to do. Remember, in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So put this together. How is God going to glorify himself among the nations? He's going to form a people who are forgiven of their sins. A great phrase. Cleansed, clean from all their uncleannesses. Clean from impurity and immorality and idolatry from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God will glorify his name by forgiving his people of their sins. And, and verse 26. So I think we are tempted to stop at verse 25 in our understanding the new covenant. You can be forgiven of your sins. Trust in Jesus and you will be forgiven of your sins. You can know you have eternal life in heaven, cleansed of all your sins, which is absolutely true, yet utterly incomplete. Because it's not just forgiveness of sins that's being promised here. 
And if we stop there, what will happen? If we stop here, then we will create in our minds a version of Christianity that says, come to Jesus, be forgiven of your sins, and then you'll have all kinds of people living just like the rest of the world, but they say, well, I know I asked you to forgive me my sins, so I'm forgiven, and they just live just like the rest of the world, kind of coasting things out until we get to heaven. It's not biblical Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. Forgiveness of sins and I will give you a new spirit. What a promise. Verse 27, I, God says, I will put my spirit within you. God will dwell in his people. Just think about that. When you were saved, rethink that moment when you trusted in Christ, repented of your sin, Put your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. At that moment, you were forgiven of your sins and you received his spirit. A Christian, listening right now, just think about it right where you're sitting. The spirit of God is dwelling inside of you right now. It will knock you out of your seat if you really think about it. He's in you. The spirit of God is in you. Why? So that they might obey my will. And giving his people, his spirit, God says, I will transform their wants. I'll give them entirely new wants. I will remove the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. People who had hearts of stone, hard toward God, unresponsive to God, unyielding to God, will now be soft toward God and responsive to God and submissive to God. They will want God. They'll desire God. They'll delight in God. This is the Christian life. You have radically new wants. An entirely new will. I want to follow him. Hearts change from the inside out. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, be careful to obey my rules so God will dwell in his people so that they might obey his will. And what is his will? Put it together what we just saw. His will is to make his glory known in the world. That's the will of God. For our lives. We don't even have to ask, God, what's your will for my life? He's told us. Make my glory known in the world. That's my will. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of ways that takes place in our lives as we walk in God's statutes and we obey his rules. But think about this specifically in light of when the new covenant happens, Luke 24, 45 through 49, Jesus, after dying on the cross, rising from the dead, right before he ascends into heaven, says, he opened his mind, the Bible says, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance of forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Did you hear that? Repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations starting here in Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you my spirit, but stand to the, stand in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is promising the filling of God's spirit, what Ezekiel 36 is talking about. For what purpose? So that they will be his witnesses in the world. Which is why when Luke picks up the story in Acts chapter one, what did Jesus say? There, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my what? My witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. My witnesses in all the world. So don't miss what the Bible is teaching here promise of the new covenant, reality of the new covenant, 
When people are saved by the grace of God for the glory of God among the nations, God forgives them of their sin and fills them with his spirit so that they might obey his word as his witnesses in the world. Let me say that one more time. When people are saved by the grace of God for the glory of God among the nations, God forgives them of their sin and fills them with his spirit so that they might obey his word as his witnesses in the world. In other words, by God's grace in the new covenant, believers in Christ are not just forgiven of sin. They are filled with the spirit of God in such a way that they have what it takes to obey God's will as witnesses in the world. So, now I come back to the question. How confident are you to make disciples and multiply churches without dependence on performances, programs, and professionals. Every single follower of Christ, as we've just seen in God's word, has the spirit of God in them and the word of God in them. And in this, every single follower of Christ has what it takes to obey the mission of God, the will of God to make his glory known as a witness in the world. My concern, though, is that we, if we're not careful in our thinking, become unnecessarily and in some ways unhelpfully dependent on performances, programs, and professionals to do that which God has already equipped us to do. Here's what I mean by that. How have we, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, communicated disciple-making in our church culture? Gather together for a service, what I'm calling here a performance just because most of our churches like the one we're in right now are set up theater style with a stage and an audience much is made to center on what happens on the stage namely the activities of musicians and a preacher then we go from performance to programs designed for every age and stage of life preschool programs children's programs student programs college programs young adult programs men's programs women's programs married programs single programs senior adult programs programs for people who just don't fit And those programs are often at least facilitated or organized most often by professionals who make it happen. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saying that all of those things, I want to be really clear, are bad in and of themselves. In fact, I would argue there's much good and much biblical that is happening in some of those things. But here's, here's the problem, or should I say a problem? What might happen if you were suddenly planted in a remote or unreached part of the world where you didn't have a performance and you didn't have programs and you didn't have any professional ministers around you? What I'm asking is, could you make disciples and then gather those disciples together into a church that was focused on making disciples and multiplying that church? How confident are you to make disciples and multiply churches if all you have is the word of God and the spirit of God? I think that sounds pretty intimidating to us, 
But that's where I want us to realize, like, this is almost exactly the circumstance we read about in Acts 8, when the members of the church in Jerusalem were suddenly scattered across Judea and Samaria. What does the Bible say they did? Acts chapter 11, verse 19, they proclaimed the gospel. They planted the church at Antioch, the church that then became one of the most strategic, multiplying churches in the history of Christianity. So, as a pastor, I want to prepare people to do that. In this gathering tonight, I want to exhort us to be ready to do that. To be so confident in the Spirit of God in us and the Word of God in front of us to make disciples and multiply churches wherever God leads us in the world without dependence on performances, programs, and professionals. And when that is the case, I think mission, according to God's design, just takes off. So, so when I'm out in the lobby just a couple weeks ago and a guy comes to me and he says, all right, pastor, I did it. I, uh, my job, I saw an opening in the Middle East and so I took it. I moved my family to the Middle East. What do I do now? <laughs> That's a good question. He's like, well, you showed in the word. Now what do I do? And so I, I want that brother, that sister, that family to be ready for that. I want them to be doing that here making disciples right where they live, where they work, where they play, in such a way that when God says, do this somewhere where the gospel's not yet gone, they're ready to do that where the gospel's not yet gone. So that we are. So how confident are you in the spirit of God and the word of God? Is the spirit of God and the word of God sufficient for you to make disciples and multiply churches? And I just want to encourage you. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. So you can be confident. You can be confident. So that leads to the last question. Here it is. How desperate are you to see dead people come to life? How desperate are you to see dead people come to life? So uh, we need to rethink how, why we were saved. Rethink what happened when we were saved. We were filled with the spirit of God and forgiven of our sin. Now let's rethink what we do now that we have been saved. We live to see dead people come to life. So I'm uh, totally running out of time, but uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, those of you from McLean are not surprised at this moment. So uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, well, let's just read it real quick. So this is illustration of God bringing the dead to life. Verse one, the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel writes, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were signs on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. Just imagine this scene. 
But there was no breath of them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones of the whole house of Israel, behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves, raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves, raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, uh, so the context here is clearly, this is God speaking to his people in exile. He's saying, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to life. That's how this new covenant's going to play out. But here's what I want you to see. How does it happen? How, how do the dead come to life? Connected with what we just talked about. Is the word of God and the spirit of God sufficient? What, how, how, did, how, did, how did bones Dry, dead bones come to life. Two factors at play. The word of God and the spirit of God. Speak and the spirit will move. So in this picture, I want you to see a picture of how the gospel will spread. How dead people will come to life when servants of God Speak his word and the power of his spirit. The dead will come to life. So how desperate are you to see the dead come to life? You think about, you think about where you live right now. You are not in that neighborhood or that apartment complex by accident. God is sovereign over everything, including the details of your lives. He has the whole thing rigged. And he has put you in that neighborhood, in that apartment complex for a reason. There are people who are spiritually dead all around you. Why are you in that workplace? There are people who are spiritually dead all around you. Why are you in that city? There's people who are spiritually dead all around you. So how will they come to life? They'll come to life when servants of God, children of God, filled with his spirit, with his word, are bold enough, desperate enough to step out and speak this word to one of those people. And trust that that word, not because of your ingenuity or your creativity and presentation of it, but because of the power inherent in it, he will bring the dead to life. And do you believe this? Like we, if we're not careful, we can get so caught up in talking about how hard our culture is, how hard it is to share the gospel and this, with this kind of person or that kind of person or, and that's in our culture. What about across cultures in this way or that way? We will miss the point if we spend all our time, time talking about how hard the ground is instead of how great our God is. Like his, his word has power to bring dead to life, the dead to life. So are you desperate to see that? And are you desperate to see that not just where you live, but all around the world? I was praying 
two nights ago with my kids for the uh, Brahmin in India. Like nearly 60 million of them. Upper echelon, upper class Indians, the Brahmin, nearly 60 million of them. Very few known believers out of 60 million. And I'm just praying, God, please bring Brahman to life. Please bring Brahman to life. Send laborers to India. Raise up laborers in India to spread the gospel among the Brahmin. You've saved us for your glory among the nations. Show your glory among this people group. Brahmin, are we desperate to see the dead come to life? And that's where, I guess, when it all comes down to it, I think it was in a video earlier, like, if we are desperate for the dead to come to life, then there will be an urgency in us. Urgency in us to realize there are people who are dead. And they will come to life if we'll proclaim this word to them. So let's proclaim this word to them. Do we feel that urgency? Right before I was about to come out, I I was reminded of of a quote from Jonathan Edwards that I just want to put before us. It's uh, it's kind of a hard quote to hear, but I think it uh, drives home the necessity of us rethinking these things. Because uh, by God's grace, our eternity is secure in Christ. But we need God to take our minds off ourselves and rethink how we're living for the spread of this good news to those whose eternity is not secure who are on a road that leads to an eternal hell, like an everlasting hell. Edward said, to help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven, all of a glowing heat, or in the midst of a blowing brick kiln, or of a great furnace, where your pain would be as much greater than that occasion by accidentally touching a coal of fire as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour, full of fire, as full within without as a bright coal of fire, all the while full of quick sense. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? How long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? If it were to be measured by a glass, how long would the glass seem to be running? And after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be to you to think that you had yet to endure the other 14? But what would be the effect on your soul if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment to the full for 24 hours? How much greater would be the effect if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? And how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? Oh, then how would your heart sink if you thought, if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end, that after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than ever it was, that you would never, ever be delivered. Brothers and sisters, I plead with us. Let us not be ignorant or indifferent. This is not a game like... There's real, eternal, everlasting, everlasting judgment 
awaiting those who don't hear and believe this good news, the dead who don't come to life. So I plead with us to live with desperation to see the dead come to life. Right around us, right where we live and wherever God may lead us. Just open up our lives wherever you might lead us, God. You have saved me by your grace. Praise God, we don't have to fear that. Praise God, we, we have been saved from our sin and all of its effects in eternity. So realize you've been saved by grace for his supreme glory among the nations. That is why you have breath right now. You've been forgiven of your sin and filled with his spirit to make disciples and multiply churches with your life. So do it, work. While we still have time, work to see the dead come to life. And as we do, we will experience the joy of proclaiming his grace and exalting his glory and fulfilling the purpose for which we live. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite us just to, uh, before we move on to kind of next, I want to invite us to just let this soak in and you right where you're sitting to pray. And so I think we're going to, we're willing to have just time like this at the end of each time in the word. So uh, for the next few minutes, I want to invite you to pray. I just want to invite you to go to the Lord with what you just heard and from his word, from his word. And, uh, and maybe that's, you just pray. Maybe if you're taking notes or if you have something to write on, just to write out a prayer. I, I know that's helpful for me sometimes to keep my mind from wandering. So maybe you just need to write out what God is speaking to your heart right now. I just want to give you a few moments just to let the spirit cause his word just to soak in uh, and, and then we'll move on to what is next. So God, we pray that your spirit would uh, transform and renew our minds even right now. You would just lead and guide our thoughts and our desires and our prayers in this gathering. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you would like to watch today's full sermon or download the free discussion questions, you can do all that and so much more at our website, Radical.net. And if you are in the Washington, D.C. area and would like to hear David in person, please make plans to visit McLean Bible Church, where David serves as the teaching pastor. You can learn more about McLean and find a campus near you at McLeanBible.com. O-R-G. That's McLean, M-C-L-E-A-N, Bible.org. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us at Radical.net.